Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mind on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and today I'm speaking with Sarah DeVries. Sarah is a licensed clinical social worker as well as a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor and is currently a team coordinator at Penn Medicine Princeton House Behavioral Health in North Brunswick. My other guest today is Sarah Carstens, who is also a licensed clinical social worker as well as a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor and is currently the addictions clinical director for Penn Medicine Princeton House Behavioral Health's outpatient services. Today, we discuss the current state of substance use in the country, as well as how to address stigma with this population. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode and find it helpful. Sarah DeVries and Sarah Carson, thank you guys so much for being here with me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Andy. Happy to be here, too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. But I think as you both know by now, uh, the first thing I like to do is have you just kind of introduce yourself. So, so Sarah DeVries, why don't you go first and introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. I'm Sarah DeVries. I'm a team coordinator at Penn Medicine, Princeton House, the North Brunswick. I work mainly on the adult unit, do a lot of coverage. Team coordinator means working as both a therapist as well as doing managerial stuff. And I've been with Princeton House over the past eight years or so. Awesome. Well, welcome. I know this is your uh, maiden voyage on the podcast, so hopefully it won't be too painful for you. Okay, Sarah Karstens, you're up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Um, So I'm Sarah Carsons. I'm the Addictions Clinical Director for Princeton House Behavioral Health Outpatient Services. Um, So my role, um, I've been in this role for the past year and a half and do a lot of training, development, uh, education, program development and policy when it comes to all things substance use and addictions related. And more recently, have also really been trying to bring together some of the other components of our health system and ensure that, um, you know, our inpatient unit and outpatient units are really working very collaboratively together, um, especially when it comes to this particular population. Also, I might add podcast veteran. Podcast veteran, Princeton House veteran. Yes. Um, So if this ship gets rocky or the ride, we know, Sarah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But I think um, the natural place to start here is just, Sarah DeVries, for you to just talk. You were the one that sort of brought uh, this topic to my attention. And can you maybe just talk about what it is that you wanted to bring up today and why? Sure. Um, So I think living in New Jersey, um, having worked extensively with people who are dealing with substance use as well as their families, it's a really important issue. It's also um, National Recovery Month, so it's something to be celebrated too. But I think generally people have had experiences very close to home, including myself, with um, substance use and the implications of that. So I think 
hopefully having it as a resource for people who have dealt with challenges with substance use, um, particularly dealing with grief and loss related to substance use as well. Yeah. And I, I think just to just kind of add on to that, um, you know, the the topic of addiction, recovery, overdose, um, you know, th- this is something that has really gained national attention and is, you know, it, it's a platform. Right. Um, and there's there's so much media attention around it. Um, and fortunately, even, you know, government has been able to get on board and really identify that this is something that needs to be addressed. Closer to home, obviously, in New Jersey, we have an ongoing issue with, you know, with overdose, with substance use and people not necessarily getting the help that they need. And it is such a a complicated topic that it really deserves a platform, you know, for people to be able to kind of just hear from, from some of us who are, you know, kind of seeing it and doing it day in and day out that there, this is something that can be addressed. This is something that, you know, that, that people everywhere of, you know, all, all walks of life are dealing with. And it's also a topic, as Sarah mentioned, that is not just about the individual, right? This mm-hmm. is, you know, this is, they talk about, you know, when we are thinking about like disease model of addiction, you know, addiction is a family disease. And so I, I think I would a little bit more kind of generally and broadly say that, you know, most of us have been impacted by substance use in some way, shape or form. And the impact that that has on us as individuals is a really important topic to consider also. Yeah, I might even say that all of us have been impacted by it on some level. I don't know anybody who doesn't have, you know, a family member or close friend who struggles with this to some degree. But that might, I I could be wrong about that. I don't think you're wrong. And if it's okay, like, I'll personally share my experience as well. Um, I worked in addiction. I've been working in addiction treatment since about 2013. In 2020, I lost my brother to overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was also in recovery for a really long time. And I think kind of to everybody's point, it, this impacts everyone and all of us on many different levels and to speak openly and honestly about it from all lenses is really important. Yeah. Remember when you uh, mentioned to me that you're willing to come on here, I really appreciated the personal nature with which you have dealt with this. And listen, I think that is one that is sort of a place of strength that that you can come from in terms of you can give uh, sort of a clinical uh, perspective on many of these topics, but also a personal perspective. So I just really appreciate you being able to come on here and being willing to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you. And so also to that end, I wanted to talk about the statistics or the numbers in regard to how many people this affects. And Mm -hmm. these are rougher numbers, but for example, with both fatal and non-fatal overdose, um, in 2022, there were at least 180,000 non-fatal overdoses that were reported. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another statistic I had um, from this year, there were approximately a hun- over 100,000 
deaths versus January of 22, when there were about 70,000. Mm-hmm. And connected to that, naloxone, which we can talk about later as a protective measure, saved about 50,000 wow. lives in 2019 alone. So, Yeah, and it's, it's just evident of the, the really disturbing ongoing trend um, that, you know, year after year, we are seeing increased numbers of overdoses and overdose deaths, sadly. Um, mm-hmm. And I know as it is recovery month and just kind of trying to get a handle on the statistics, um, you know, it, it was from the CDC, it was up another, you know, 0.5% from 2021 to 2022 year end. So mm-hmm. it, it, it is ongoing. And sadly, it, it continues to rise year after year, even when we think that this is the worst it can get. I think that there will be points in this conversation where we're talking about sort of substance use in general, regardless of the substance. But mm-hmm. um, right now, we're, we're pretty much talking about opiates specifically, I think. So what do we attribute the rise in overdoses and deaths to? Is it uh, fentanyl? And if it is, can we maybe talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I, the the research does indicate that um, the increase does tend to be significantly contributed to by the mixing of synthetic opioids into contaminating the drug supply. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's not the only thing that is contaminating the drug supply right now, but it definitely is a major impact on um, on what causes the overdose deaths. Mm-hmm. Or the overdoses in general, um, and and interestingly, while while we do really um, so, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid and is many many times stronger than like your typical, you know, even something like heroin. Mm. Um, so the potency of it is dramatically higher, which means that you know much less is needed to feel its effects. And when taken in you know amounts that you, you don't even know what it is that you're getting, the system is just not prepared to deal with that and very quickly shuts down. Mm-hmm. I, and while while fentanyl is an opiate, I think it's also really important to note that, you know, this is not something that is specific to opioid users, because fentanyl and other contaminants are rampant in Mm. the drug supply in general. Mm -hmm. So lots of counterfeit pills, which people think could be something else that they are used to taking, are also, you also are containing fentanyl at this time, mm-hmm. cocaine, benzodiazepines, uh, you know, other stimulants, things like that. So while, you know, while the, the opioid is main contributor, people who do not typically use opioids are equally impacted at this point in time. I know part of the issue too is almost, is an economic factor and fentanyl can be much cheaper mm. to produce, mm-hmm. yes. including the analogs. So it is often compounded, which to Sarah's point is why we are seeing this in other substances. Do you guys know, and I don't, I don't know if you would consider this off topic or not, but like, have there been cases of people who um, like overdosed be on fentanyl because they were trying to like use cocaine? Yes. And then were they and revived with naloxone? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And that is, so at this point, um, 
and I'm, I'm not going to speak to, um, you know, I don't want to speak to like kind of standard police procedure, but I, I believe that the protocol is when you see someone who is exhibiting signs of overdose of any kind to administer naloxone, Mm -hmm. um, that, and, you know, regardless of what the person, you know, if they have friends and say, oh no, he, you know, he used X, Y, and Z, um, you know, I, I, believe that the protocol is still to to administer Narcan for for the reasons that we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And again, I think a pretty good illustration of just how insidious the, the fentanyl problem has really become. Because um, you're not just talking about like, you know, carrying Narcan or naloxone for heroin users, but it sounds like there are many different drugs that could be kind of cut with or, or have been cut with fentanyl, uh, which is causing opiate uh, overdoses, which obviously wouldn't be expected if that's not the drug that people think that they're using. But that's interesting um, and obviously scary. Very much so. This this may be for like later conversation, um, as you know, as Sarah was indicating. But there is such there's such a push now to get Narcan out to the public. And it's Mm. because of things like this. Um, It's because you you, you just, you don't know. Um, People who are not expecting it can very, very easily, you know, um, experience an overdose. And so, you know, there there is a very strong push to make sure that it is widely available um, and people know how to use it Mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, be part of those life-saving statistics. I think it speaks to like the broader discussion too about having these conversations to reduce stigma so people mm-hmm. understand and are open to helping to hopefully prevent and heal. All right. So considering that this is such a prevalent problem and so kind of insidious, what is maybe like one or two of the biggest preventative measures that people can take? I think so. In terms of prevention, my mind goes to what are the steps toward prevention? And there's a quote that I really like, and I don't know the author, but Mm -hmm. it's connections, the opposite of addiction. So like connecting and having the conversation, if you know someone is a substance misuser, um, in a way that feels appropriate to say, like, is there Narcan accessible? Mm-hmm. So if you personally know somebody who has an issue with this, making sure that you have access to Narcan mm-hmm. would be... Where they have, of- yeah. Yep. Okay. Sarah, too, anything to add? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, you know, again, we're, we're trying nationally, the country mm-hmm. are, uh-huh. are really, you know, healthcare really also trying to make sure that this is a resource that people have access to. So, you know, making sure that, yes, family members and loved ones have access, but that the individuals themselves have access, because I am sure that there are many times where the person who has overdosed has Narcan on them um, mm-hmm. and are able to be saved or, or you know, revived with the Narcan that they have on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's also just being, as Sarah was indicating, just being open to having the conversations and and recognizing that 
having having a conversation and suggesting that um, that Narcan be available is is not endorsing ongoing substance mm-hmm. use. It's recognizing, you know, where this individual is at and helping ensure that they stay alive. Because I, I think that there is very, very likely a fear that if I'm talking about these things, then like I'm I'm giving permission. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as as Sarah said, staying connected is what helps people heal. So I, I just think that that's a really important, um, a really important component too, you know, because we don't, there, there are support groups for people out there and things like that. But, you know, discussing, discussing Narcan with, you know, with a loved one feels different than discussing someone's chemo treatment. Right. And yet when we look at the big picture, they're, they're both life-saving measures that, you know, that need to be on the able to help address very serious illnesses. Yeah, I think that really makes me think about um, stigma. And like, at least in this field, I often hear people talk about reducing stigma. And that's sort of a broad statement, right? But then you don't really take into considerations like the different nuances that that actually come along with having those conversations. But realizing that some people may be resistant to carrying Narcan the same way that they're resistant to like medication assisted treatment because there's this idea then you know that's not pure enough or that's not that's condoning the substance use in some way I really think that that just kind of comes back to this idea of stigma. Absolutely and when we're looking at you know research empirical evidence um, you know best care practices medically assisted treatment, MOUD, however, you know, however you want to phrase it is at the top of the list for individuals, you know, making sure that people have Narcan as, as Sarah had indicated, it is, it's a life-saving measure and we have st- statistical significance to show that. And I, I just think it is, it, it just adds such a, an additional level of complication for seeking help and for that family of that of that individual to be able to talk about what is going on for them when there is there continue to be perceptions of um, if you just you know if you just had more willpower right or if you tried harder or just stop doing that mm-hmm. um, you know as as if it were really just a matter of like personal choice or moral failure right um, mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I think that that again, it just brings an extra extra layer of complication um, to the treatment process for sure. But I think also to you know to the process of of the loved ones who are um, you know trying their best to provide support. I think kind of moving to like a place of how stigma is connected to a lot of judgment and mm-hmm. strong emotions for both the families, the people working on substance use, and then the people around them. And moving to a place of, I hesitate to say more objectivity, but kind of going to the point, again, this is a, a medical epidemic. right? And can we kind of look at it through a diff- different lens or something that has that and focus more and, and we we've tried the you know don't do drugs drugs are bad and we've tr- we've tried the condemnation uh, you know we've we've tried all of that and it it didn't work we mm-hmm. we are still we're still year after year seeing increases um in in the overdoses and in the use and you know we're not seeing similar increases in people seeking treatment 
So mm-hmm. I, I think that that really points to a fundamental flaw in using that as the lens to view substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, potentially, I mean, my personal belief is, is very much in line with what Sarah said, and that um, being able to really you know, look at the person as an expert with lived experience and work with them on what's going to work for them and getting family members on board with how they can, you know, how they can be a part of that process as well in a way that feels, um, that feels congruent, not, you know, enabling, but really with, with, um, with safety and health um, and sustainability being, you know, being the target. I just a thought I had when I was listening to you guys talk about sort of the stigma component is that really the best way to shut down any conversation with somebody who's struggling with mental health or substance use is for there to be an air of judgment, right? Um, Absolutely. And and that's really what we we're talking about. I think a lot of times where we're talking about stigma. So and that's not to say that you can't be frustrated or terrified or upset but when you're trying to talk to someone about these issues the moment that they get a sense that you're judging them is usually the moment that they shut down i think with most humans we shut down when people start approaching us with this place of like you should be doing this and judging and like the unsolicited advice Mm -hmm. so like this concept of meeting the person where you're at and where they're at and also recognizing where you're at at the same time. That's a good point. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Like recognizing where you're at as opposed to where the person is at? So you might be at the place of, Hey, like I am really angry and this major event just happened where an overdose did occur and the person's not seeking treatment Mm -hmm. and recognizing those feelings that you're having as well as take i guess stepping into the other person's shoes Mm -hmm. and where they are in terms of readiness to change and i think that's where it can be doubly difficult for the loved ones um of those individuals right because you're, you're trying to see things from both sides. You're trying to be, you know, compassionate. You're trying to understand their perspective. You're trying to stay connected, but your feelings are so, so different. And the things that you may want are so, so different Mm -hmm. than what they may be willing to do. And so, you know, I think the, there's a really fine line and a really huge struggle to navigate, you know, how can I, how can I stay connected to this individual and provide as much, you know, love and support as I can while still honoring my own experience and my feelings and my limits and boundaries? Because, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, because they're unwilling to participate in treatment, you know, we're not saying they, you have to give them money or let them stay with you or, you know, no, that that's not, that's not what we're talking about. Um, it's, you know, I think it's, it's finding that delicate balance and, and being able to support in a way that you can, given, you know, what you have, um, you know, what, what you are experiencing in your own personal process. And I think that that's where it can be so incredibly complicated because those are oftentimes very, very conflicting things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.